Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 172. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we ask that you'll bless us tonight during this live Bible study. I ask that you would, by your Spirit, penetrate deep into our hearts so that we can walk away with something that's meaningful, something that is impacting on us, something that allows us to to pause and to reflect and to um, consider uh, what you are trying to say to us. Lord, you have so much that you want to speak to us, but we're often just too busy to stop and listen. So help us to slow down more. Take time and uh, consider what you are saying to us by your Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. Bless each and every student who's joined me tonight, whether live or by podcast or by YouTube later on. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Bashim Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, once again for joining me week after week for these live internet studies. We missed last week due to some unforeseen uh, circumstances that were out of my control, but I'm glad to be back in the driver's seat again. Let's jump right into our study. We are in the Matthew 9, 14 through 17, Judaism v. Christianity. It's kind of the short running title for this particular study. And um, it's a fairly new study. We're only in about, say, part 15 or episode 15 or whatever you however you want to uh, describe it. So we should be starting, I think, number 16 tonight. This is number 16. Um, let's jump in. Let me read the verse real quick for you. You can see it on my screen. I'll read that first so that you can understand um, what verse I'm working from, and then I'll just jump right into my own commentary, which, I, which is available on my website. So on the uh, uh, page right now, you can see I say, here's one version of Yeshua's parable as rendered from the Matthew 9, 14 through 17 reading. So let me read it for you. Starting in verse 14, these are Yeshua's words. He says, um, or uh, Matthew writing, Then the disciples of John came to him, came to Yeshua, asking him, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 15, And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? Continuing, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Verse 16, but no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Continuing, verse 17, nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined, but they are put... but Jesus says, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. And that rendering of the Matthew passage that we just read is from the New American Standard Bible. Okay, so this passage is a parable, but it's a kind of a working anecdote, you know, where Yeshua's drawing some um, common sense teaching from everyday examples that people of that day would have been familiar with. The whole idea about putting wine into wineskins and uh, patches of cloth onto garments and things like that, as well as the the opening um, uh, words about um, uh, mourning and and fasting with with the bride and the bridegroom, the marriage theme there. Um, This is going to be more relevant for the people of that day and that time. Maybe these days we're not understood. We don't, we don't, you know, if you talk about weddings and marriages, people aren't talking about mourning and, and fasting. And and uh, we certainly don't talk a lot about putting patches of, uh, we don't talk about shrinking clothing before we sew patches onto them, things like that. Most people don't. You know, if some article, article of clothing is worn out, you just go to the store and buy a new one. 
or you hand it down to your to your to your younger brother, right? He gets all the hand-me-downs, and you get all the brand new clothes. At least that's how it was in my family, right? Um, and then um, and then he got this uh, statement about new wine, old wine, and things like that. You know, I I I'm not even a wine drinker to begin with, and, and even if I were, I'm not making my wine. I'm right, right. I'm not concerned about putting old wine and new wine into old skins and new skins and all that stuff. I mean, what's all that about? Even people who are wine drinkers that I know don't have a clue what it means to you. Do we even use wine skins? You know, come on. So all of this has to make sense to his original readers first in order for them to even infer the lesson or the principle of what he's trying to talk about. So let's skip back, uh, skip past a, a, a paragraph in my content, uh, my commentary that we already looked at and just jump down to this one and then we're going to be ready to tonight to start looking at some examples of explanation from pastor john piper we'll break into that tonight but we're first let's continue or conclude with this introduction uh, portion of my study so here's how my commentary reads i have to say the primary passage in question will be matthew 9 14 through 17 even though i say a parallel of this passage does exist in mark 2, 18 through 22, as well as Luke 5, 33 to 39, you're always encouraged when you're reading through your Bible to uh, be aware of the fact that, especially if you're reading through the synoptics or the Gospels, that uh, one version of the story may show up in the in another one of the gospel writers and it's helpful if you're doing a, a meaningful bible study to um, be aware of those other readings so you can be aware that there sometimes are details that were either left out in the version that you're reading or uh, he spins it a little differently you know because each writer sometimes tells the story slightly differently um, and so that's always helpful we're not going to do that tonight in this particular study, just I want you to be aware of the fact. Sometimes you only find a story that shows up once, but in this case, uh, it does show up in the uh, in uh, two other gospel writers. I continue. I want to answer my own question right up front, and um, uh, you know the the questions are uh, have to do with if you don't if you don't if you're not following the series if you haven't like binge watch it and you're unaware if it's your first time this is the first video you're watching part of the questions that i'm proposing in this particular um study is when we read this passage about unshrunk cloth and old wine and new wine and things like that if you're aware of the um average christian commentary or sermon on this parable or story of Yeshua's, you're aware that many Christian pastors spin this topic to have Yeshua's talking about Christianity is really incompatible with Judaism. Um, the old wine skin is Judaism. The new wine skin is Christianity. The old wine is Judaism. The new wine is Christianity. Things like that. And Yeshua is clearly working from this anecdotal principle that um, there's going to be some conflict if you mix the old and the new together, right? He's talking about the wine skins bursting if you put old wine into new wine skins and things like that. And so the principle that's drawn from that in most commentaries and sermons that I have uh uh, been made aware of that I've interacted with are something along the lines of the Torah of Moses is the old wine, or it's the old wine skin, or it's the incompatible theology. It's the it's the um, line of thinking that's incompatible with the New Testament or the New Covenant, or um, the Church or Christianity or something like that. And so many pastors are going to go on to explain that Yeshua is trying to alert them to the fact that there's going to be this transition stage. 
in Israel's history. The old is going to be phased out, old being Moses, Torah, Judaism, that type of thing, Israel. And the new that's going to be transitioned in or phased in is going to be New Testament, New Covenant, um, law of Christ, uh, Christianity, uh, the Christians, the, 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 you know, all that stuff, the body of Messiah. And thus, uh, if you don't take my word for it, then look at the way history has played out the theology of the idea that God has replaced the old with the new. Of course, we're talking about replacement theology and supersessionism. Uh, the whole notion that um, the Jews rejected Jesus and so God rejected the Jews. Uh, kind of almost like in revenge fashion, even though we wouldn't probably use those words. But it's almost as if because one people group failed to carry the truth of God's word forward, God said, I'm going to put you in time out or I'm going to... Um, you know, bench you, you know, to use kind of a sports analogy, uh, something like that. And um, I'm going to start working with some players who are going to, um, you know, be cooperative, meaning the church, the Gentile Christians. And so here we are 2,000 years later, and for the most part, in general Christianity, right, general, the general, I'm using very broad strokes here, so don't get offended. But in the general sense, um, your average garden variety Christian is going to probably interact with Judaism, the Law of Moses, um, Israel, and things like that in the sense of, hey, you guys are kind of the old. You guys are the ones who came before, but you're not the current players. You're not the current dispensation. You guys are maybe a past generation you know, or something like that, but God's currently dealing with us. You guys were the the, 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 the God's favorite for a while, but uh, because you guys messed up, you know, in the first century, when you rejected Jesus, well, then, you know, God had to deal with you. And the synagogue likes it that way. They don't like the way it's probably termed. You know, God replaced us. They wouldn't, they certainly wouldn't accept that line of reasoning. But they do like the fact that, hey, you guys are you and we're us. The us versus them, us, us psychological perspective. Or, or anthropological perspective, or whatever, you know, uh, historical perspective. You guys have your uh, interest and truths and, and, and program, and we have our interest and truths and program. Leave us alone, and we'll leave you alone. Don't bother us. We won't bother you. Don't try to um, dismantle our theology. We won't try to dismantle your theology. Just, just live and let live. You guys have your side of God. We have our side of God. You guys have your perspective. The, the you and the our is the kind of the mentality of, um, Jews saying, you know, um, Jesus is for Gentiles and Moses is for Jews. And then, you know, the Torah is for Jews and the New Testament is for Gentiles. And that's all that. That You know, that's what we're really kind of be uh, looking at in, in some of these teachings. All right. So I go on to say, I want to answer my own question. The question I ask is, you know, is, has God given up on Judaism? Is is the Torah of Moses really the, out, the old wine? Uh, so those are some of the questions I've been entertaining in this study. And I say that I don't believe believe that the master was teaching the death of Judaism and the birth of Christianity in these verses per se. So those are some of the questions that uh, I'm addressing. I go on to say, in other words, I firmly believe that replacement theology is rotten to the core and that Yeshua would, re would repudiate such teachings. In case you're unaware, look it up on your own. Take some time. Do your, Give yourself a little bit of background if you understand what replacement theology is. You can hear it in the name. Replacement. 
who or what is being replaced and what is being brought into um into the new right what's what is being swapped out right so you got an old pot it's you know it's several years old you you've cooked up a lot of dishes on it and it's pretty black from from all the uh, the food that you've burned in it and you know, all that um non-stick coating has worn off by now so that whenever you cook in it uh everything sticks all right you gotta use a ton of grease just to cook your egg uh, so that it doesn't stick and when you do scrape it out of the pan you're scraping off half that um uh Teflon coating or whatever that used to be there anyway, it's all burnt uh, and cracking and, and, you know, it's rusting where the screws meet the pan. And so, you know, it's warped from being heated too hot and et cetera, et cetera. What's the picture I'm describing? The pot needs to be replaced. In this picture, it's it's a no-brainer, right? You just head on down to your local, you know, BBB, Bed Bath & Beyond and pick up a new pot. Well, is that what Yeshua is saying? Hey, Judaism has run its course, but by now it's kind of old and crispy and burned and warped and and rusted, and um, it's time to get a new uh, cooking pot. Let's see what can God's God's the, the the shopper. He's thinking, you know, you know, where can I find a new pot? Aha! Let's pick the Gentiles. You know, they're the fresh, clean, um, you know, shiny uh, pot. Let's let's pick them. Let's let's buy them and toss out that old pot. Okay, is that what God's doing? All right. So um, I say in my commentary. However, I don't want my readers or my viewers to get the impression that I have completely rejected prevailing Christian interpretations surrounding this particular passage either. So we're going to look through half a dozen different Christian perspectives on this chapter. Like I said, the first one we're going to get to tonight, we're going to take a bite out of is Pastor John Piper. But over time, we're going to look at um, John MacArthur. We'll look at gotquestions.org. We'll look at David Guzik. Guzik, Guzik. I think it's Guzik. Um, and the purpose for looking at these particular pastoral perspectives is not to slam them and show you how superior we messianics have come to understand the passage. That's not what I'm going to do. And I also don't want my readers or viewers to get the idea that I'm throwing those pastors under the bus and saying that you can't trust them. On the contrary, the one reason that I singled out these particular resources is because I do trust them. They are absolutely fantastic resources, even though I disagree with some of their theology, like, for instance, gotquestions.org, uh, headed up by um, Matt Slick, I believe. Um, I think he is a, he's not dispensationalist, um, but he holds to a, a, a a form of, the, of of theology when it comes to Israel that kind of amounts to dispensationalism or a little bit of replacement theology, and so I have to disagree with the central tenant tenet of his perspective. But other than that, I mean, the resource is fantastic. Gotquestions.org, right? You, it, it's a really good resource. So I don't want to give that impression. Um, what I say in my commentary is that there's value in some parts of what most Christians are teaching on this particular passage. Obviously, we're all human. We all make mistakes. We all have failures and weaknesses when it comes to um, uh, exegeting any particular passage, uh, me included, right? No one is perfect. We don't have perfect knowledge, so we need each other. What ends up happening, in my opinion, is that each one of us um, approaches any given topic, and we have strengths that we bring to the table, and then we have our own flaws that are brought to the table, uh, even if we're unaware of them. And what becomes... The job of Bible students is to be able to sift through and be able to discern what is value and then toss out what is um, fluff. 
So uh, you got to be able to um, work through a, a lot of material and be aware that you're not getting uh, total truth. It's not uh, it's not my fault that I, it's not total truth. It's just um, you know I'm I'm a faulty human being. So I can't, I'm not faulting John Piper or John MacArthur or any of the other pastors we're gonna be examining. You know they're in the same boat as me, right? They put the pants on the same way as I do, one leg at a time. We're all human. We're all faulty. We're all just trusting and relying on God's Spirit to help us along. So let's just be a little um, kind to one another and not um, be so harsh all the time. I say in my commentary, I simply want to challenge the average Bible student or pastor to consider what I believe is a more historically and biblically accurate way to understand Yeshua's parable in this section right and we're going to be we're going to keep referring back and to the uh uh the parable over and over again and we're going to do this in order to uncover the heart of the master's teaching here i think you should be one of the first ones to say if you're going to misunderstand my teachings then you need to go back and keep praying about it and rereading it and restudying it and redig you know just keep digging digging and sometimes it takes a while to get to the truth of the matter um I mean, I don't, know, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I'll read through a passage of the Bible, and I don't get it right away. I'll read it over and over again. I'll pray about it. I still don't get it right away. It just means that I've got to dig a little bit deeper and trust God and be patient uh, for Him to show it to me, to, to reveal it to me, to explain it to me. And so the Bible is this lifelong book. It's not something you're going to master in a year, even if you read through the whole thing in a year. It's not meant to be that way. It is, it is, a, it is, a, it is a gift it's a love letter from God that we're meant to go through over and over and over and over and over. We can't exhaust the truth in God's words, right? It's 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 inexhaustible. You can't plumb all the depths in your lifetime, um, which is why it's such a wonderful resource. You just kind of go through it over and over. Every time I read a passage over and over again, I find new things that I didn't catch the first time. And isn't that wonderful? So let's, let's just learn together, okay, and not be so judgmental against each other. Here's what I say. Let me briefly explain how I stumbled upon this particular study and then move right into a few examples from well-respected Christian sources before examining a few Messianic sources for comparison. And as you know, in my studies, I'm often um, comparing and contrasting what I term Messianic resources with standard Christian resources. And the distinction I'm making is not that one is better than the other. Like we Messianics have all the answers and you Christians are just so pitiful. That's not the comparison or contrast I'm hoping to set up. And that's not the the um, the message I'm trying to send through these particular teachings. Rather, what I'm trying to say is that Historic Christianity has a lot of strength in their theology, but they have some glaring weaknesses as well. Messianic Judaism or Messianic Torah observant peoples or the Torah crowd, the Torah movement, the Hebraic roots, whatever um, label you want to uh, give us. Um, we also have a set of strengths that we bring to the table of discussion, but you, we also have our weaknesses. And what I've learned is that if we learn to work together with one another, then together we can um, minimize our weaknesses and we can highlight our strengths. 
And the purpose is to grow together and to strengthen one another and to build one another up in this body of Messiah so that we can be better equipped to do the work of God, to continue to bless one another, to reach a lost and dying world uh, for the go- with the gospel of, of Messiah Yeshua, rather than always arguing with one another and trying to defeat one another theologically. But in order to do that, we've got to be able to hear one another out and be able to rethink some of the things we've been taught. And to that regard, sometimes it's necessary for me to sit back and go, you know what? I didn't think about it that way. I've been, always been taught uh, one way, and because of my perspective, my particular um, theological background, or um, you know the bias I bring to the table, I never thought of it that other way. And so, um, thank you, and I have to say this to the, to the other crowd, thank you for helping me to see it a different way, in a different light, in a different vein. Right, um, constructive criticism is always great. Like I'm talking to uh, one of my good Bible study uh, partners here in the live study. We were chatting before I started the study, and he was giving me some constructive criticism on my YouTube channel. And man, if I don't have that type of feedback, I won't know if I'm doing something wrong. I'm just going to keep plugging along the way I think it should be going until I have someone tell me, "Hey, you know what, Ariel? What if you did it this way? Might work out better. Might be a little bit more effective. Might be a little bit more impacting." I never thought about those different changes. So. Well, yeah, I like that. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna dip, get. We're gonna. We're gonna do some constructive criticism on these different pastors and see if we can learn something from the um, the, the uh, exercise. All right. So the first example we're gonna use is the example example from Pastor John Piper. So this section is entitled "Example from Pastor John Piper." If you guys don't know who John Piper is, Google search him. He's a great pastor, a great resource. I mean, I highly recommend him, regardless of which theological denominational background you come from. This guy has got a passion for the Word of God, a passion for truth, a passion for the Spirit, and um, he is he is just driven to um, see souls saved and to see uh, the body of Messiah built up. So, I mean, a great resource. This guy's not fluff. Um, great. I mean, if you listen to just one sermon and you can just tell the guy's on fire for God. So, I really, really am drawn to that. Um, and a lot of uh, good lessons that you can draw from him, even though he's not what we would call pro-Torah or pronomian, the idea that the law of Moses should be applicable for today. He doesn't hold that perspective like I do. He doesn't keep the Sabbaths and festivals and wear seat seat and, and try to keep kosher, uh, put a mezuzah on his door and you know uh, things like that. As far as I know, he doesn't do that. His perspective is that all that's been done away with, kind of the whole um, supersessionism or replacement theology or dispensationalism or something. He's of that camp, but guess what? He's got a lot of good, solid Bible um, theology that I need as a Christian. And so I'm going to return to him from time to time, uh, time to time again, so I do recommend him. Here's what I have to say about um, uh, Pastor Piper. Recently, I was nearing the ending of a personal fast. This is just me talking. And the purpose, like many personal fasts, was to press in closer to God, closer to Yeshua, closer to the Ruach HaKodesh, right? That's what fasts are for, uh, to take reflection, to to um, to be introspective, to, to take inventory, to ask God to help you clean things up, to strengthen yourselves, to reset. Sometimes press the reset button, right? Um, and so um, I hope you're fasting regularly. If you're not, then you're missing out, okay? Um, I continue. A fast, I say, is a great way to keep the fire stoked and to continue to subdue the flesh in our pursuit of becoming more and more 
Christ-like. And of course, this is our biblical mandate as believers. doesn't matter whether you're Messianic or, or garden variety Christian. Um, we are commanded to be like the Messiah, like our master. And if you're, fasting is just one of many disciplines that's going to help you achieve that goal, you know, prayer and um, devotion and uh, praise and worship and, um, you know, uh, Bible study and uh, listening to good preaching. And, and you know, those are all things that are going to uh, feed your spiritual man and help you grow spiritually. So let's continue. As was the case during many of my personal fasts, I decided to immerse myself in scripture and in studies about fasting. This is why I included that part in the particular um, anecdote that Yeshua provides or parable. Uh, the, you know, it starts out with the fasting. Why does the bridegroom fast? Why don't your disciples fast, etc., etc.? Because that was originally where I was, uh, where my interest was peaked during that particular time when I was fasting. By the way, you guys are all aware that fasting doesn't always have to take the. Um, uh, doesn't have to take the uh, uh, way of abstaining from food. You can abstain from certain forms of entertainment, like you can fast from TV, or you can fast from the computer or the internet, or your smartphone use, or fast from playing games for a certain time period. You know, fast from going out to movies or going out to eat, or fast from from certain forms of entertainment, or um, even things that are normally harmless. Right? There's nothing wrong with you know watching your favorite uh, TV show on Netflix, or or you know uh, you know going to your favorite uh, sports game or anything like that, playing your favorite video game, uh, this, you know, you know, getting caught up in your social media circles on your smartphone. In and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with those things. But when you deem it so that you need to set those things aside so that you can press in closer to God, so you can listen to what the Spirit is speaking to you and allow God to cleanse you and to draw you uh, close to Him so that He can, um, uh, uh, you know, um, minister to you and you can minister to Him, well, then um, sometimes it's fasting from food and sometimes it's fasting from something else. So it's between you and Hashem. Just work it out, all right? But the thing is, you got to do it. All right, uh, let's continue. So uh, I was looking up verses about fasting, and uh, in my particular case, I like to hear the wonderful testimonies about how other believers have fasted and prayed and pressed in for God's presence to move in their lives, and how His faithfulness has proven true over and over again as breakthroughs come. I love hearing uh, testimonies, and I, lis- I love listening to people share their testimonies, how God has blessed them, because it blesses me to hear them speak of the faithfulness of God. It just reaffirms my conviction that God is faithful and that God is trustable and reliable. And if God can help them, then he can help me. It's not that he's always going to do so, and he's not always going to you know, definitely do it the same way. Hey, God blessed that my brother over there with you know a million dollars. Well, then God, that means God has to bless me with a million dollars. No, that doesn't mean that, right? Maybe he's going to bless me with five million, right? <laughs> um, no, seriously, um, we've got to learn to um, bless one another with our testimonies and um, We've got to be able to be patient and listen to other people explain how God is blessing them uh, so that we can continue to build one another, up, one another up in this great body of Messiah. Amen? Amen. I go on to say, to be sure, the Torah teaches us this, quote, come, come close to God, and he will come close to you. Or one version puts it, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, right? You've got to take some steps. If you want God to get close to you, 
right? You're crying out for spiritual revival in your life. You're crying out for um, insights into the text. You feel like uh, the Spirit is dried up in your life. You feel like God's distant. You feel like uh, He's not walking with you anymore. You look on the, you know, you look down at the foot prints in the sand and you wonder why there's only one set of footprints you think it's because god left me no it's because i think the the old uh poem goes to show that those are times when god carried you um but you know what i can promise you it's more often that we're the ones who wander away from god rather than the other way around god isn't the one leading leaving and forsaking us it's us that leave and for, wander away from god we just get we become disinterested right we get we grow cold in our walk we become uh displaced um in our interests um you know we become complacent in our walk uh, and so we become distracted by all the, the events of the world around us uh, so the Torah has to remind us come close to God or draw near to God and he will come close to you he will draw near to you he is a God of closeness he wants to be close to you right so set your mind to be close to god set your mind on that right uh, um commit yourself to that is what i'm trying to say and this of course is taken from james or jacob chapter 4 verse 8 and also there's another passage in hebrews that reads this way quote therefore let us confidently approach the throne from which god gives grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need and that's hebrews 4:16 i mean now more than ever, more than ever during these days of stressful pandemic news, right? Omicron variant is rearing its ugly head. Um, you know, Ukraine and Russia are at war now, and now the United States is getting drawn into all of the conflict. And you know, we read this. It seems like there's bad news on every headline. And the world is spinning out of control, right? There's insanity everywhere you turn. And we we Christians, we throw our hands up. And, you know, we should be the ones who have hope because we have the book that gives us hope. We have a God who has, has explained to us the end from the beginning, and we should know how things are going to turn out, generally speaking. We shouldn't be those who are so stressed to the point that we're, you know, drinking ourselves into a drunken stupor uh, because we're trying to drown out the world's troubles. That's not the perspective we should be taking. We need to find mercy and grace just like everyone else because we're human. And so God says, turn to me, run to me, come to me. I will give you mercy. I will help you to find grace in your time of need. We've got to avail ourselves of the resources that are here. The Spirit is here. The Word of God is here. It's at our fingertips. It's on our smartphones. It's on our tablets, our our, our computers, our laptops, our desktops, uh, our smartwatches. It's on posters. It's on bumper stickers. It's it's on the radio. It's right. It's on TV. It's on cable TV. It's on all the the streaming networks. Right. The Bible is everywhere what's our excuse people what's our excuse let's continue as it turns out as i'm explaining the story of mine i was reviewing a sermon by a well-known well-respected bible teacher named pastor john piper and he was preaching on matthew 9 14 through 17 a passage uh, that's familiar to most Christians, I'm sure. Uh, you may not know about it, but if you don't, you're going to learn about it uh, sooner or later, but you follow this study. And I say near the end of his short sermon, Pastor Piper made the following applications for his particular church, and they were based on his understanding of these particular verses. And my brackets below are going to indicate which topic is being addressed by his explanation. And we're going to stop right there tonight. 
since we're about 30 minutes into my study. We'll pick this up next week, and hopefully what you're going to do is you're going to watch the videos that I'm going to produce this week on this particular study on on uh, Matthew um this Matthew section of, of verses, uh, Judaism v. Christianity. And um, watch all five videos. I'm going to try and change up the format a little bit so that it's easier for you to watch it on your YouTube uh, playlist uh, per the instructions from my uh, my good Bible study friend who's in the uh, live study with tonight. Make it a little bit easier for you to kind of follow along. But do me a favor, watch all five videos um, so that you're watching the study as a set. And um, leave me feedback and let me know what you think about uh, the slightly different format or on the study as a whole. But that'll do it for um, Judaism v. Christianity. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. I invite you to visit my home congregation online at graftedin.com and catch the recent sermons uh, that you can see on my screen right now. Pastor Mark is in a series entitled Marriage and Family, and he started part one tonight. I also have my own uh, Torah teaching website at tetzetorah.com, T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. Click on any of the links that you see on the screen right now and avail yourself of all the resources available there. Also, catch me on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetze Torah Ministries. Um, as you can see, I'm a pretty busy beaver, uploading content multiple times a week. In, in fact, at this pace, it's about twice a day. Um, but make sure you subscribe, hit the thumbs up, hit the bell for notifications, leave me comments, and make sure you're sharing the content with all your friends and family in your social media circles. Live Internet Studies is brought to you every week. Uh, we're in uh, episode number 172. The meeting date is March 5th, 2022, USA date. We meet each Saturday afternoon from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. I hope you can join us for the entire hour-long of studies. Uh, this is segment one that we just finished, 30-minute segment, an examination of Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? We just went through part four. Uh, we're about to turn to segment two, 30 minutes of exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Paper three, who or what is the Holy Spirit? We're in part 104 tonight. And then if we have time, sometimes we run out of time, but if we have time, we'll watch the short little SQSA live series, What is the New Covenant video. So I hope you can stick around for all of that. If you'd like to join us week after week, just get access to Skype somehow. You can join us via Skype by clicking on the blue Skype link that you can see on your screen, and that'll launch Skype on your browser if you happen to be uh, joining us during these live studies during the time frame of 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Central Standard Time on Saturday afternoons. Um, then uh, Skype will launch, and uh, you'll be able to join us for those live studies. But if not, um, make sure you're catching all the studies uh, on my website or on my YouTube channel. And then one last thing real quick. Um, prayerfully consider partnering with me. I, I'm always asking for people to to consider sending me resources uh, to help me out during this time of need. Um, uh, because I'm in a difficult time right now where I don't have a regular income and I'm basically surviving on the, uh, the gifts and donations of uh, friends and family members and people who are helping me out. So I'm very appreciative of that. But I want to stop and just say thank you. Instead of asking for uh, resources at this moment, I want to stop and just say thank you for all those, to all those people who have been helping me for the last two years during this, um, it feels like an extended furlough, but I, I mean, I really am living in denial that I really am out of a job, right? <laughs> I like to just keep telling myself, I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm on furlough, Ariel, you're on furlough, you're going to get rehired sooner or later, right? It's been two years, <laughs> and my work hasn't called me back, so I'm, 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 it's, it's unemployment. But I want to say thank you to all those uh, people who've uh, given me gifts once, or given me twice, or people who are regular givers uh, to my uh, ministry. Um, you can't even begin to know how much of a blessing it 
is. No matter how much you give, how much Lord's uh, impressed you to help me with, uh, it's always helpful. So if you give me one gift, that is great. If you continue to give to me uh, day after day and week after week or once a month or once every few weeks or whatever, um, um, please continue to do so. That is such a blessing. I just want to uh, bless you for that and thank you for that. Um, silver and gold have I none, like Peter said, but such as I have, give I thee. What can I give back to you? All I've got is my ministry resources. They're all here for you to partake in free of charge. Uh, I don't charge anyone anything for any of the resources that I provide, YouTube videos, um, podcast content, website uh, teachings and things like that, uh, you know, Torah commentaries. Um, I am just delighted to be able to um, put the resources together and make them available to you for, uh, for you absolutely free. So thank you, thank you, thank you. As I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity and jump back into the study where we left off. Let's see if I can accelerate this a little bit because this part of the study is a little more challenging for your average Christian because of the nature of the study. We're talking about, um, let me jump down into the topic and you'll see what I'm talking about. We're in this section under paper three, who or what is the Holy Spirit? And the section is... um, uh, section number four, who or what is the Holy Spirit, the filioque debate, Eastern Orthodoxy, the Latter-day Saints, and social Trinitarian thoughts. And uh, the reason it's a little challenging is because most of us are not into the historical discussions about East versus West, uh, you know, um, Roman Catholicism versus uh, the Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, or Greek Orthodoxy, however you want to describe them. Most of us are probably, most people listening to my content, uh, interacting with my videos, are of some form of evangelical Christianity uh, perspective. So um, most of this is probably probably slightly going either over your head or around your head, around your face. It's just not uh, catching your interest um, right away. So I can understand that. I can appreciate that. Let's jump jump down into the study and pick up where I left off. We're working from this verse, just so you know, where Yeshua is told, he's speaking in John 15, 26. Uh, you can see it on my screen right now. Yeshua says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And the um, question is raised, who sends the Holy Spirit? Does he proceed from the Father and is sent from the Son? Does he proceed from the Father and the Son? Is he sent from the Father and the Son? And does it even matter? Well, around the around the uh, early um, uh, few centuries of the uh, Christian Church, it mattered enough that they that they were brought into some heated discussions on this particular verse. This wasn't the only thing driving their disagreement. A lot of it had to do with authority of who speaks to the church. Is it the one pope in Catholicism? It wasn't called Catholicism yet. At least I don't think it was. Uh, well, it was the Catholic Church, but my point is it wasn't um, defined as over and against uh, the Orthodox Church just yet. The split took place, what we call the Great Schism, around 1054, uh, kind of came to a head. It had been building up to this point the whole idea of who has the authority to speak to the body of, of you know, to speak to the church, to the saints. Do we have to listen to one man like the papal authority, or can we have like what we call patriarchal authority in the um, orthodoxy side where we got different patriarchs or different local leaders who uh, can rule over their certain areas or lead different um, separate groups, and we all come together and have 
equal authority, but at the same time, we have our own locally autonomous authority. And this is in contradistinction to this one central papal figure who speaks to everyone from Rome, right? Who has the authority? That's really what drove the schism or the split. But in this particular study, um, germane to our study on the Holy Spirit is the idea that uh, we're having this discussion about um, who, who sends the Father? Who sends the Spirit? Does Yeshua send the Spirit? Does the Father send the Spirit? And how does this help us understand God? If God the Father is the source of everything, if He's the Arche, like we say in Greek, if He's the one source, the Monoarche, um, the Monarch, um, then where does Yeshua's role fit in? Is He subordinate to the Father? Is He less than the Father? Is this cheapening our understanding of of the trinity if we say that only the father can send the spirit that yeshua had doesn't have that power does this take away from and diminish from the authority of the son etc etc these are the kind of discussions that we're having these are kind of in line with our um apologetic work on the um on our discussions of the holy spirit here so so that's why we're uh bringing in this particular topic about the um filioque so let's pick up the discussion um, where we left off, let me see, um, give me a second, let's see where I left off, there we go, right here. Here's what I have to say, additionally, we're making these quotes from um, either Wikipedia or from online resources. I say additionally, the Encyclopedia Britannica, the online edition, provides this information on the filioque. The phrase filioque, we're going to define it now in case you weren't aware, here's what um, uh, Britannica uh, has to say the so-called filioque filioque clause latin filioque and the son or um filio the son uh from from the son or the son from and the son uh, we would say um and uh filio son and the son uh this particular uh, latin phrase was inserted in the creed afterwards the holy spirit who proceeds from the Father. So we've got this church creed, the Nicene Creed, I believe it was, that was originally crafted by the early church, and it was kind of a set of statements of beliefs of how the church understands and uh, processes theology in a, in a kind of a, a very neat, convenient way for followers of Jesus, of you know, Christians, help us to kind of rattle off what we believe without having to always turn to verse in Scripture. If you can memorize the creed, then if someone asked you, you know, are you a Christian? What do you believe? You could just rattle off the creed, and that conveniently provided a way for you to interact with your your set of beliefs, which I think is a good thing. It's not a bad thing, right? But um, there was a particular clause or a statement, a sentence in the creed that was structured one way. And it kind of sat that way for a few hundred years, and then it got altered by one of the groups, by the church in the West, the Catholic bunch, and the church in the East, which, uh, keep in mind, they weren't split along the lines of the way we see them today just yet, they were just located in different parts of the globe, the church in Rome, the church in uh, Jerusalem, or the church in, 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 in Greece, or whatever, the Greek, the Latin, the Latin verses, um, uh, uh, Greek-speaking church, etc., etc. One in one part of the world, one in one another part of the world. That's what I'm trying to describe. And um, they had this this clause that got changed without asking, without permission from the other group. So 
uh, if, if I remember my history correctly, uh, the Western Church changed the creed to include some extra words without asking the Eastern Church if they had the permission to do so or if it was a good idea to do so. And it brought up the whole matter of authority again. Hey, who, who said you guys can do that? And of course, the Western Church says, well, our papal authority gives us permission to change it. We don't really need your permission to do it. The Pope has the authority to do that. And of course, that's when the Eastern Church kind of raised their objection and said, hey, well, what if we don't agree with one papal authority? What if we think it's better to have a patriarchal perspective where we have a lot of local autonomy? And so the, the arguments ensued, the disagreement came to a head, and uh, in 1054, the split took place. All right, so um, uh, they, this article continues. This particular change was gradually introduced as part of the creed in the Western Church, right? They're the ones who introduced the change. Beginning in the 6th century, they continue. It was probably finally accepted by the papacy in the 11th century. This is just history. It has been retained by the Roman Catholic, Anglican, and Protestant churches, but the Eastern churches... Sorry, let me scroll up there. The uh, Eastern churches have always rejected it because they consider it a theological error and an unauthorized addition to a venerable document. So again, it's not just a theological difference of where does the Holy Spirit proceed from. It's the idea that if we, if we as a body of believers um, uh, teach that one part of the Trinity has a power that the other part of the Trinity doesn't, then doesn't it um, doesn't it send the wrong uh, signal as to the makeup of the Trinity? It's, in other words, the Eastern Church feels that that's what it is. It's kind of an attack on the way the Trinity should be understood ontologically, economically, and things like that. Um, for most of us in, in um, evangelical circles, what I have come to understand is that for us, we're not as nuanced in this particular discussion. We don't really have as much of an investment as to whether or not the Holy Spirit has to proceed from the Father alone versus procession from the Father and sent from the Son, right? That kind of splitting of hairs for us is unnecessary. Most of us in evangelical circles come to believe that we believe in one God, we believe in the three persons, and we just read the verse at faith value. God is the one who um, is the one spoken of as the Holy Spirit proceeding from, yet the Son is the one who sends. And so for us, there doesn't seem to be any theological error, no big deal. Uh, if there's a different verb, proceed versus send. Um, you know, if, if we say, like the Catholics say, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, it just means that Yeshua is very God, veiled in flesh. He has the power of God, just like God the Father. There's one God, right? The Father is God, the Son is God. Uh, therefore, if the Holy Spirit proceeds from God, um, who's, what's the big deal if it's God the Father versus God the Son? I mean, it's still God. I mean, so we kind of interact with the, uh, the information that way, which is why I'm going to try and accelerate some of my uh, commentary here. So uh, let me continue. I say in my commentary, in point of fact, as a non-Catholic and a non-Eastern Orthodox Christian, this is me, I've always been just a bit troubled by the details surrounding the Great Schism. I personally, I personally do not believe that a centuries-long church split seemingly over something as trivial, quote-unquote, as the difference over two Greek words, right? I know it's more than that, but just follow along. I personally don't believe that this was God-sanctioned. I don't think it was. 
right? I don't think God's God was glorified in the fact that um, the two churches are still split to this day. Now, I know, again, it's more than just the filioque. It's more than just this disagreement over procession versus sending. I know it's more than that. It really is, at the root of it, it's an issue of authority. It's the Eastern Church challenging the authority of the Western Church, right, Greek Orthodox or Eastern Orthodoxy, challenging uh, Western Church slash Catholicism, challenging this idea of central papal rule, right? We don't like that idea. A lot of evangelicals or Protestant Christians also would take the side of Eastern Orthodoxy in the sense that we don't subscribe to a central one man ruling everybody unless that man is Jesus, right? We don't subscribe to this one pope who has the authority of all, right? One man to rule them all, one man to lead them, right? <laughs> I'm kind of borrowing a, a phrase from uh, Tolkien's uh, 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 Hobbit, uh, Lord of the Rings theology, right? One ring to rule them all. We don't think that there should be one Pope to rule them all. Um, we think that we should have a lot of local autonomy, right? Local leaders, local pastors, local parishes, local, um, uh, you know, leadership. We don't like the idea of one man having to put his final say on everything. Again, unless that one man is Jesus, one man is Yeshua. So I can appreciate the Eastern Orthodoxy pushback on this, but in the end, why has this split lasted for? you know, for a thousand years, for a full millennia. Why haven't we healed this? I mean, I know that Catholics and, and Eastern Orthodox uh, still dialogue with one another. I know they pray together. I even am aware that Catholics will um, drop that clause out of the filioque when they're praying with Eastern Orthodoxy just to kind of yield to the brother, right? Um, you know, not cause any conflict. Um, but why hasn't the church unified itself? Why do we still even have a Western versus Western at all? So um, I don't think it was God-sanctioned, although I say in my commentary, historians were going to remind me that it was much more complex than a split over two simple words, right? Proceed versus send. I know it's more than that. Yes, please don't. Um, I can see all the emails being typed right now as all the comments are being put into my YouTube videos. Hey, Ariel, you're not following history accurately. <laughs> okay, I'm aware of that. I'm not trying to say that that's all that's all what's going on. I continue. However, however, given the long-lasting and wide-reaching effects of a schism that has persisted right down to this day, surely we as spirit-led believers can and must recognize that the adversary was hard at work in those days to divide us as a body of Messiah, right? This is what he does. Remember my video talking about a roaring lion seeking about seeking to devour seeking to divide us, seeking to, to go after the stragglers and the weak and those who are not staying in the crowd, right? You want to stay in the bunch. You want to stay in a group. The adversary is seeking to divide us, and he still seeks to divide us, but he doesn't have to divide us so easily if we can stick together. But um, I say he's still hard at work these days. He was hard at work a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, three thousand years ago. He's not going to stop, and he's still hard at work these days, seeking to accomplish the very same thing, which is division and strife and destruction and ultimately death in the body of Messiah. I say, oy vey. 
We need to be aware of his tactics. Let's continue my commentary. Transitioning now away from the initial filioque discussion and specifically to our next section here on Eastern Orthodoxy and the Holy Spirit. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to somewhat put a bow on this idea of the filioque debate. Yes, the Eastern Church and the Western Church still have their disagreements. The Eastern Church thinks that it is still theologically errant to say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son because that's an inaccurate way of describing the ontological nature of God, of the God that we serve. Um, the Son has a certain amount of subordination to the Father. That's why he's called the Son. And therefore, if we simply say that the fa- that the Son can can process the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit can proceed from the Father just like he can from, I'm sorry, that he can proceed from the Son just like he can from the Father, then according to the Eastern Orthodox perspective, then what need do we have to for the title Father? Why don't we just collapse the identity of the Father into the Son and go along with what the Oneness Pentecostals say? There's really one God and his name is Jesus. There really is no need for uh, a title known as Father, right? We lose all of that. Um, that's some of the uh, uh, um, pushback. That's not all of it. That's just part of it. But let's transition away from some of that. I've let me, let me just for now. We're gonna have to let the two those two churches have their have their wage their battle with one another. We Protestant evangelicals are pretty much out of that fray. We're just going to go along and say that uh, most of us are going to recognize that uh, the Father and the Son have some unity. Um, there's some overlap in their roles and functions. Uh, father is Father, Son is Son. They're not the same person. They are separate persons, uh, but they are one God. Right? They are one God. We we don't understand exactly how that works. It's a mystery, but we um, celebrate that mystery and majesty. That's what we uh, Protestant evangelicals typically do. And so I'm not going to spend too much time on the filioque debate other than to say that I believe that there really isn't debate. The Father proceeds, uh, the Father processes, or the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, and He's sent from the Son. It's exactly like the verse says. No confusion to me. All right. So let's transition away from that just a bit. And when we do so, I say in my commentary, what we do is we encounter a Trinity model known as social Trinitarianism. Now, these are discussions on the issues of Trinity, and we have to be aware of the different Trinity perspectives or models. They're all called Trinity. They all believe in one God and three persons to some degree. Um, Some of those perspectives aren't as neatly defined as I just labeled it, one God, three persons, one what, three who's, like Dr. James White is fond of saying. Um, Some Trinity models, like the Oneness Pentecostal, Jehovah's Witnesses, Iglesia, and Cristo, um, uh, 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 were, uh, uh, what do we say, Um, some of these other, uh, you know, um, uh, Latter-day Saints, um, you know, Unitarian models and things like that. They don't say one God, three persons. They, for them, there's no three persons. Uh, for many of them, it's just one God, three masks, one God, three modes. Uh, for many people, there aren't any modes. They're just one God, period, one person. Um, so Trinity, uh, I mean, there's one God, and then there's there's the Messiah, and then there's the Spirit. So for them, Trinity doesn't equal three persons. So we have to be aware of the different Trinity uh explanations that are out there. I'm not saying all of them are equal. I'm certainly not even suggesting that they're all correct, because many of them are diametrically opposed. But we made, we need to be aware of them so that we can try to, uh, as we pour through Scripture, ascertain which one of them are 
have the better descriptions, have the better um, perspective so that we can begin to draw our own conclusions. So let's define social Trinitarianism. Defined again according to Wikipedia, this particular Trinity theory, social Trinitarianism, is described as, quote, a Christian interpretation of the Trinity as consisting of three persons in a loving relationship which reflects a model for human relationships. The teaching itself emphasizes this when we're talking about social trinitarianism this teaching emphasizes that god is an inherently social being right that's wikipedia and so i say in my commentary interestingly in my assessment social trinitarianism models would likely appear quite quote innocent enough in quote to the average protestant christian bible student so that's the, 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 the range of people that I have in view when I'm making this particular statement. I think this particular perspective is innocent enough to most average Protestant Christian students of the word, even without any Eastern Orthodox acts to grind. What I'm trying to say is that social Trinitarianism is the perspective that many Eastern Orthodox Orthodox believers or Christians hold to. It's the model or perspective that they prefer over and against a different form of Trinitarianism that's perhaps maybe um, taught by, say, Catholic Christians and the Protestants that come after them. So in reality, Catholic Christianity has one version of, tr of a Trinitarian model that's somewhat contrasted to the Eastern Orthodox version of Trinitar Trinity model. They're both Trinity, but they have different um, uh, points of interest, points of, of um, starting points. Um, I'll put a little graphic on the screen where you can see this as a triangle that's right side up and a triangle that's upside down when we're talking about Catholic versus Orthodox. I'm going to explain it here in a moment, so don't worry if you're not following along with me, if you don't see the graphic on your screen just yet. But um, germane to our study is that many Protestants, without being aware of it, would probably interact with the social Trinitarian model as completely acceptable. They would say, I don't see any problem with it. They, they don't say that, well, just because it's used by the Eastern Orthodox, I have to reject it. Something like that. So, indeed, I say um, in my commentary, indeed, this same Wikipedia article goes on to explain concerning social Trinitarianism. Let's read the uh, Wikipedia article, and then we'll call it quits for tonight. So, here's Wikipedia's article on social Trinitarianism. Orthodox Christian theology asserts. So, let me pause. This is according to Wikipedia's view or understanding of Orthodox Christianity. So if you're not an Orthodox Christian and you're listening to my voice now, consider what Orthodox Christians believe concerning the Trinity. And after you listen to it, or you're probably reading ahead of me while I'm talking, you're, you're tuning me out and reading ahead. I'm fine with that as well. Consider that when you read this, you think, as a Protestant Christian, evangelical, you're probably thinking, well, there isn't anything there really there that I completely disagree with. It sounds fine to me. What's the big deal? All right. Just listen up. Orthodox Christian theology asserts that the one God is manifest in three persons. Now, stop for a second. So do Catholic Christians, right? They also assert that there's one God manifest in three persons. So do evangelicals, Protestant evangelicals. Nearly every Protestant evangelical believes that there's one God in three persons. It's when you get to the 
like I said, the, the these special groups, oneness Pentecostals, um, um, Unitarian groups, uh, Iglesini Cristo, um, um, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormon groups, uh, Latter-day Saints, um, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, and some of these other groups. I'll, I'll flash a little graphic on the screen to show you some of the um, uh, uh, different Unitarian or uh, groups that don't believe that there are three persons. But a good number of Christians hold to some form of a Trinity model. So within the Orthodox crowd, this particular um, one God, three persons, this term that they say was generally used in the Latin West, right? So um, one God, three persons, uh, Latin uh, Christians, which are, later became Catholic Christianity, they're the ones that are fond of uh, using this particular uh, term, three persons, uh, is what they're trying to say. But continuing, social Trinitarianism, this is a kind of a working definition. Social Trinitarian thought argues that the three persons are each distinct realities. This was generally presented in the East with the Greek term hypostasis from the first Council of Nicaea onward. So they had this particular idea of hypostasis. What are they talking about? Hypostasis was here employed to denote a specific individual instance of being. So, according to Eastern Orthodoxy, the Trinity is composed of three distinct persons or hypostases, which are integral are in integral relation with one another. So again, most of this sounds like standard Christian theology on Trinitarian beliefs, you know, one God, three persons, they're all one God and things like that. And I think that most of us would probably interact with it that way. So we're not going to get too um, nitpicky at the moment. We'll say that for the next show. Uh, but, but that'll do it for now. We'll continue on this later on. So keep following this commentary. Watch all five uh, 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 videos, like I said, in this particular set. Uh, but that'll do it for now for exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Now let's turn to the short little video that we're going to watch for tonight. We'll watch the video, and when the video is finished, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. Are you ready? Here we go. Short Questions, Short Answers by Torah Teacher Ariel and the Bible. Copyright Tate's A Torah Ministries 2015, all rights reserved. Let's take a look at our question for tonight. The question is, what is the New Covenant? Yes, this is a very important topic, so let's take our time on this one tonight. Using a computer-assisted word search of the ESV version of the Bible, uh, this term New Covenant shows up in eight verses, Jeremiah 31, 31, Luke 22, 20, 1 Corinthians 11, 25, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, Hebrews 8, 8, 8, 13, 9, 15, and 12, 24. Those are the places that this term shows up. Since the truths of the apostolic writings are rooted in the theology of the Tanakh, I'm going to comment on Jeremiah 31.31 passage first. Let's just hit that one first, and then we'll work from the Jeremiah passage towards the other passages. God says this new covenant will not be like the old covenant of, uh, in this very important way in 2 Corinthians 3.14. This new covenant with national Israel will not simply be articulated to the entire nation as external written letters read 2 Corinthians 3.6. Rather, God will put his covenant laws and promises into their hearts as a matter of national election. 
That's our Jeremiah 31, 31, 33 reference all over again. The effect is that they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares Lord, Jeremiah 31, 34. So we see God is making a change in national Israel. New Covenant states that God will forgive their sins of the people since their consciences will have been cleansed via their faith in Yeshua's sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 15, 10, 14, 17, and 18. No more sin debt under the New Covenant. We're free from that. In plain English, Jeremiah is prophesying about the day when the people of Israel will be characterized as saved on a national level. And that's what I mean by no more sin debt. In God's eyes, they, the sin debt has been wiped clear. The books have been cleared. And this salvation will result in permanent forgiveness of sin and true covenant-keeping obedience on their part. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, as well as 36, 27. Look up those passages where God talks about taking out this heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. In one sense, because this new covenant is made exclusively with national Israel, it awaits future fulfillment. For indeed, Everyone in national Israel obviously does not yet know the Lord in the truest covenantal sense described by the Bible. Read Romans 10, 21, and we can see that. In fact, we exegeted Romans 10 in our last week's study. And yet, at this very moment, Gentiles are being brought into Israel's new covenant via faith in Yeshua, Romans eleven nineteen and 20. The new covenant has been appropriated by anyone who has placed their genuine faith in Yeshua, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Read Luke 22, 20 as well as Hebrews 9, 15. So, what does this look like in terms of remnant? We've got national Israel as one big blue circle. We've got uh, Gentile nations as one big red circle. And when we overlap the two, we've got spiritual and lasting Israel right there in the middle. So Jesus is a doorway to spiritual and lasting covenant membership. We'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more. That's just a primer. In fact, since Yeshua is the sole mediator of the new covenant for salvation, personal or corporate, John 14, 6, this means every person in every age is a part of the new covenant and they must participate in the new covenant via Yeshua's mediation if they wish to be saved from the wrath of God. That's how new covenant works. It's only done through Yeshua. This implies that the new covenant is not something that's time bound. And you're thinking, huh? All right, all right. Let me flesh this one out a little bit because this one's a little bit challenging for most of us who've been taught that it's only through Jesus. All of salvation history revolves around the cross event of the first century. Uh, read Galatians 4, 4 through 7. All of salvation history revolves around Yeshua. It all points to what Yeshua did at Calvary. So what are our conclusions so far from this slide? What is the New Covenant? Borrowing terminology from Messianic Jewish author Tim Haig, I'm going to summarize my answer. Jeremiah's New Covenant is the fullness and internalization of the Mosaic Covenant on a national scale, for it is characterized by the phrase, quote, I will write the Torah upon their hearts, end quote. Notice it's the Mosaic Covenant that actually is getting, that's written on the heart of national Israel. It's not some brand new Johnny-come-lately uh, set of scriptures per se. The very Torah that Israel failed to keep will in the New Covenant be written on Israel's heart by the Spirit. Jeremiah 31, 33, Ezekiel eleven nineteen, 19, and Ezekiel 36, 27. It's the Spirit using the Torah on the heart that brings about the, the desired effect that God is uh, intending. What is new or unique about this covenant is that its future fulfillment will mark the only time in history when the nation as a whole walks by genuine forgiveness of sins, read Hebrews 9, 15, and genuine faith in the Messiah, read Romans eleven twenty six 26, and 27. So that's what's new or unique, meaning hasn't happened yet. 
still future. Israel hasn't hasn't yet, uh, as a corporate people group, attained to uh, walking in genuine forgiveness of sins as a as a nation. So let's look at those circles again: national Israel, Gentile nations overlapping with remnant Israel, aka the church right in the middle. Paul makes it clear that a remnant of true believers has existed in every generation. Read Romans 11, 1 through 6, right? The remnant has existed everywhere. Therefore, they must have uh, participated in the faith that Jeremiah prophesies for the whole nation in the future. You guys understand what I mean by that? Uh, the remnant is just a slice, a taste of what is to come. It's the earnest, it's the down payment of what we're going to see later. This remnant, including Gentiles, who've been attached to Israel through their saving faith, thus participate in the new covenant as the first fruits of the final harvest. Read Romans 8.23. So the remnant is so important for us to understand because it represents the greater whole finally coming into the fullness of what God has. So. Let me make it as clear as possible so that there are no misunderstandings for people who are used to watching this slide and looking at this remnant Israel uh, diagram where I've got gentle nations on one side, national Israel. People who think that I'm trying to teach that the church is replacing Israel because I say that Gentile believers become a part of Israel at the remnant Israel level. I'm not teaching any such nonsense. No replacement theology, no supersessionism, no dispensationalism. Just throw that all out. Remnant theology is what I'm teaching here, okay? Remnant Israel of old equals new covenant. The church equals new covenant. Therefore, any saved person, past, present, or future, equals new covenant. You guys catch it there? Does it make sense now? New covenant is a saved person. Now, we're, we're going to flesh this out a little later when we look at the longer uh, podcast. So, because Yeshua has always been the only way to salvation, Acts 4.12, the new covenant reality cannot be something that awaited his coming, though surely his saving work is the means by which the new covenant is realized. Read Luke 22.20. Understand what I mean there? He's the mediator, but it's not something that that awaited till his time at the cross event. In other words, people could become saved even before he uh, died on the cross. The new covenant is therefore not time-bound. And that's so important for us to actualize. So let's finalize our slides for us tonight. Wherever there is genuine faith in Yeshua, and praise God that it's worldwide. Whenever the Torah is written on the heart, and praise God that it's the Holy Spirit that writes the Torah on our hearts. There, the new covenant is active. Amen? Amen. I hope this slide has been informative for you. I want you to be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others tonight. Make sure you head on out to iTunes and, and find my podcast. You can search for me in the in the iTunes store under uh, 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 Ariel Hanavi. Also, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel. And um, I upload new content weekly. In fact, it's actually daily.
And that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's close in prayer. Abba, bless your name. And I am in a place where I'm so grateful to be on the receiving end of your goodness and your mercy and your grace. Uh, you are a faithful God. You are a compassionate God. You're a father who cares about his children and continues to take care of us and provide for us. Every one of my needs are met, Lord, and most of my wants. So I thank you, Lord, that uh, uh, you have... Uh, lavished your love upon me and that you're continuing to bless me and to protect me during these difficult times. Help me, Lord, to continue to be um, uh, in a place where I can uh, be uh, used by you, that I can be utilized by you, that I can um, uh, receive of your spirit and of your truth so that I can share with other people uh, the lessons that I'm learning from your word. Continue to strengthen us and raise us up and give us clarity of thought. Help us to retain the things that we're learning. Help us to allow the spirit to penetrate into our hearts so that we can allow the words to sink in deep and take root um, to help us to affect the change where change is necessary. Uh, continue to carry us along throughout the week as we study the words and bring us back together next week if it's your will. We'll be careful to give the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen.